The scripture reading today is taken from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And as you're seated, I want to invite Heath up. Uh, Heath is going to be preaching for us this morning, Heath Meikle. Um, there's a lot that I could say about Heath, but what I want to say is, is how dear of a brother he's become to me over the years of us working together at Christ City Church. Um, how I've been, I've been challenged and encouraged in my own faith constantly by Heath. Uh, Heath is uh, the, the chaplain, the downtown Eastside chaplain uh, that works together with Christ City Church. And he's just been amazing. I think that people often talk about the ways that um, you can believe something. That's fine. You kind of live that, that faith up here. And then sometimes you don't see that translated to real life. With Heath, you see the gospel translated to real life all the time uh, as he lives like Jesus to, to love those uh, and their suffering and their darkness and to call them to to faith and, and life in Christ Jesus. So he's been a joy. He's been an encouragement to me. Um, he's got lots of stories. You should certainly corner him after the gathering and and ask him for stories about some of the things that God's been doing in his life and the lives of those that he gets to serve. Um, but I think there's maybe few people I could uh, be more excited about preaching this particular text to us about the gospel. So um, Heath, can I pray for you? Yeah, yeah, I'll pray for you as we begin. Um, God, I just want to ask that you would bless my brother Heath, uh, that you would fill him with your spirit to declare your word with power and authority and conviction. Um, Lord, that your spirit would be working through your word uh, as it's delivered to us by Heath to convict us, to show us where um, there's unrepented sin in our own lives, to show us where we're not hoping and, and clinging to Jesus Christ and to draw us into eternal life with him. There's just so much goodness that uh, that you have for us, God, as we turn to faith in Jesus. We pray that that would um, fill this room, that we would love Christ, that we would follow him uh, joyfully as a result of this message. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Brent. Thank you, uh, Kitts. It is a... It is a real joy for me to be here. I always enjoy coming here. And, and it's smart that somebody didn't, you know, sit in the first two rows of the splatter zone because I get animated and it's a little crazy. Um, anyway, before this digresses, I'm going to open in prayer myself. Lord, uh, give us the grace to walk through this text with humility. Give us the uh, understanding uh, that your uh, work in this world 
changes our lives and give us the hearts to repent of the difficult things that we struggle with and where we do not want to surrender to you. So in this we pray, amen. Well, Christ City, we, uh, I have the privilege of also being part of East Vancouver. So with you as a church whole, we've been going through the, this first Corinthian series for probably a year and a half now. So it feels like a bit of like a marathon, you know, where there's sometimes where you're just slogging it through and sometimes you got to grasp for that, you know, like I run, right? But you grasp for the water bottle and we've come to chapter 15. Probably the most amazing chapter there is other than chapter 13 in this book. And we get, Brant opened up last week and he cracked the hood a bit and he articulated a little bit what this gospel uh, uh, of, of, of Jesus that, that Paul is describing here. And, and really what he, what he articulated is that chapter 15 is more or less the key to the entire book, the entire letter to, the, to this Corinthian church. And, and Paul, uh, he discusses, and it, it, he discusses you know, issues of sexuality, our behavior in our society, what power structures look like, what gender roles look like, you know, what we eat, how we eat, who do we eat with, how we worship together, how we, you know, where we worship, and what sort of gifts do we kind of operate in when we do worship. That's all great. But what Paul says here is really, this book is the key to understanding all of that. And if you don't get this key, you actually walk in vain. See, all of these things, they find their origin in this gospel that Paul articulates here and proclaims in chapter 15. So we read it earlier, but this is, I would like to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. This is verse 1 that, that Brant preached last week, which you received, in which you stand, and which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So that was last week. This week, we will look at verses 3 to 8. For I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, and then he, he goes on all the way to chapter eight and finally comes to says, even me, one untimely born. Like the Greek behind that word, you should ask Brant later what it means, is pretty, pretty graphic, and I'm not gonna even say it here. It's scary for me, I'm exercising self-restraint. So our roadmap is pretty simple this morning. This is not a complicated text. It's, it's simple, but not simplistic. So there's a bit of an urban legend that exists at the office. I cannot tell or describe anything with either a, a pack of crayons and, you know, drawing on the wall, a whiteboard, or telling a story. So you're lucky. I'm not going to climb up there and draw on the screen, so I'm going to tell a story. So I will, I will start with a story to kind of set the context and the urgency of this text. And then I will look at two things, two questions that are derived from this text, particularly from 3 to 8. And those are, what is this gospel that is of first importance? And the second question is like, why do we care? Like, why is the gospel of first importance? So some time ago, um, I took my wife and two children to Athens, Greece, and I helped plant and pastor a church in an ultra-left-wing anarchist neighborhood called Exarchia. Now say that 10 times fast. It was a fun time. Quite literally, saw stuff blow up all the time. Well, during this time, we're in embedded into this neighborhood, and a mutual friend of ours who was not a Christian, he asked if we would check in on a friend, uh, of, of, um, a friend of his. And this friend happened to be dying of cancer. His name was Spiros. And he lived in our neighborhood, and our mutual friend wanted us to check up on him and, and help care for him. 
So when I met Spiros at 36 years of age, what started out as testicular cancer ended up penetrating pretty much every system and organ in his body. The prognosis was not good. In fact, it was terminal. Unlike here, you know, we, we may lament and bemoan the fact that our system may be, our health system is maybe under attack or, or understaffed. Oh, it is nothing compared to the Greek system. The Greek public system, for lack of better words, is way more broken than ours. Pragmatically, what happens is, is your family becomes the nursing staff. Your family brings you food. Your family brings you toilet paper. Your family goes and buys your medicine and your family helps administer it to you and your family helps bathe you and clean you when you need help. If pragmatically, if you lack a family in Greek culture and society in the public system, you can't afford to pay for private care, quite literally, you fall through the cracks. Now, Spiros, when he was a boy, he was in a car accident. A driver, you know, carelessly blew through a red light. And in Greece, red lights are really all that they're there for is to determine fault in an accident. This guy blows a red light, and my friend watched his mother, his father, and his brother die before his very eyes. So at eight years old, he went to live with his uncle, who, as you can imagine, did not want to be saddled with his brother's kid. So he beat him. He harassed him. He made life so miserable that my friend Spiros left at 14 years of age. He never returned. He lived on the streets. He was as tough as nails as anybody I've ever, ever met. So when I met Spiros at 36, he was a hardened man without faith and without family. Now, as a church group, as upon interacting with Spiros, we, we were kind of broken by his need. So what we did is we resolved to be his family. He had no one to care for him. And because he had no one to care for him, he couldn't say no to a group of Christians who were wanting to help him. So he begrudgingly agreed and said, okay. I was with him, holding his hand through countless of horrific surgeries, chemo treatments, various operations of all kinds that are pretty, pretty alarming. I helped feed him. I helped bathe him. I even helped wipe his butt. But anyway, that's another story. For Spiros, faith in God was a joke to him. And he teased me ruthlessly of all of this kind of like antiquated fairy tale stuff that I believed in. He would repeat the mantra, kind of an, an, you know, an anarchist kind of mantra. is like, come on, they're all lies used to control you. You know, he's no God, no master. No God, no master. So despite that, you know, kind of like, whoa, reality, we became fast friends. And we would play this game back and forth as we waited in, in hospital treatment plant, you know, waiting for at the hospital, you know, you're feeding the pigeons in the hospital, which is weird. And we would play this banter back and forth. I would regale him with stories of Jesus and of faith. And he would regale me with stories of anarchism and, and stoic kind of ways of dealing with society and culture. And we would back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And it became fun. We also, in that time, we started planning a motorcycle trip across Europe that, sadly, we both knew would not happen. So, it was the spring in 2014. And he was well enough. He was between surgeries that he was able to get out of the hospital for some day visits. 
And it just happened to be a Sunday, and my daughter, who was 15 at the time, was getting baptized. So I invite, you know, what started out as a bit of a joke, I invited him to come to Kiara's baptism. And lo and behold, he accepted. So we're in the car, we're driving to the seaside, and he leans in and says, Heath, will Kiara get a new name? I'm like, what? Will Kiara get a new name? I'm like, what do you mean? He says, look, we as Greeks, we're baptized at infants. I'll save you the bad Greek accent. And when, we, when we're baptized, that's when we receive our name. Will Kiara get a new name? So I ask him, what do you think baptism means? And this hardened, tough-as-nail anarchist leans in and he confesses to me, I have no idea. Will you tell me? So this is what I say to him. I say, when Kiara stands in the water, she will publicly declare that she has surrendered her autonomy and her personal agency to Jesus. Now that is probably the most offensive thing you could say to an anarchist. So I continue. She will declare to all that due to her sin that she is broken, that she needs to be made new, that she needs to be healed, that she needs to be freed from the master of her own will. Kiara will confess that it is her sin her brokenness that keeps her in bondage. And she will also proclaim that through Jesus' death, her sins are forgiven and through his resurrection and that power, she will be truly set free. Baptism, Spiros, is a picture of what you, when you go into the water, you die to your own self and your own autonomy. When you're submerged, you say, I'm dead just like Christ was dead. And when you're brought out of the water, oh, you realize that you receive a life that's not your own. That's what it means. And, and, and when you come out, you recognize that, that when Christ comes again, and when you die, you will actually be made new and you will get a new body. So this is what I tell him. And my daughter's in the back of the car going, oh, dad, really? Even now, as I recall these events, his response still wrecks me. This is what he said. Wait a minute. If I believe in your fairy tale God, I get a new body? Of all the responses to everything I've ever preached to this guy, I get a new body? And I'm like, uh, yeah. Well, from that day forward, Spiros became absolutely obsessed with the resurrection of the dead, with the resurrection of Jesus. He became like a black hole of information, sucking into his vortex everything he could read, everything he could listen to, everything he could study. He wanted to know everything about resurrection and the coming eschaton of Jesus. About a month after my daughter's baptism, he's back in the hospital. And I wish I could remember the expression he used because it's like our expression of eating crow. And he says to me, he says, Heath, please do not laugh at me. I believe in your Jesus. He is mine. And I want him to make me whole. I want a new body after I die, Heath. Oh, let me tell you, we both start weeping. We were weeping. 
And despite his ravaged body, Spiros was made new. He, he confessed his sin. He surrendered his autonomy, which is the hardest thing for him to do. He surrendered his sexuality. He, res- he surrendered his personal agency to Jesus, the only one worthy to surrender to, the one who exercises power in weakness on the cross. And about two weeks after this, he phones me. Says, Alavre, like, hey, stupid. Uh, Heath, my uncle heard that I was dying. So this is the uncle that abused him for four years. He heard that I was dying and he wants to see me. Now, the old me would tell him to go to hell, but you know, I think I need to meet him. And then I proclaimed to him, dude, this is the power of the resurrection right here. It's already started. He's like, what? I said, So I proclaimed to him that, look, the process of having a new body has already started. Why? Because you have a new heart, and a new heart is what's what's having you operate in this. You are made new. God is already saving you because he's given you a new heart. You see, the ability to meet his uncle was a direct result of his life made new by the resurrected Jesus. He met his uncle, and a miracle happens. They reconcile after 23 years of mutual hatred. Spiros dies a week later at age 37. So why do I open my heart and tell you a really, really difficult story? I do so because my friend's life and his death and his hope captures the urgency, the intensity, and the centrality of what I think Paul is talking about here. See, what my friend understood and was compelled by was the very same thing that the people of Corinth disregarded and dismissed. The reality and the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel. So that brings us to our first point. Yay, we're already in. So, first of all, if you're new to Christianity, if you walked in here and you're like, what gospel? What is that? Literally, gospel means good news. You look at the Greek that we could, you know, it's like, You ever heard of the word evangelist? Well, yeah, I'm evangelist for Mac products or, you know, Teslas or whatever. Yeah, it means I'm proclaiming the good news of those products. Well, that's literally what it means, good news. So in verses three to five here in our text this morning, Paul gives us the good news, and there are four things here. First is Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. Jesus was buried. Thirdly, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And lastly, he appeared. Now, if you walked in here this morning and you wondered, I wonder what Christianity is all about. Well, you got lucky and picked the right day to walk in. This is what it is this morning, full stop. Well, Paul writes for us here. Most scholars believe is some sort of like, he's repeating a creed. Paul wrote what he had already heard and what he'd passed on. He wrote what is called a creed. It's a statement of, of truth that the very first witnesses of Jesus Christ's resurrection proclaimed. Through Paul, this creed has been passed generation after generation after generation, and it comes to us here this morning. What Paul holds to, what Paul delivered to the Corinthians, what he received when Jesus appeared to him, he proclaims to us as the baseline truth of what Christianity is all about. That Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and on the third day he was raised according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to, and you can read the list, countless and countless of others. This is the gospel. 
This is the good news. This creed, this gospel, all these four things basically summarized into one statement brilliantly by an old theologian who's passed away now named J.I. Packer. And he famously said this, God saves sinners. Now, if you're thinking, okay, well, that totally helps me, whatever. How do I know that? Like, clearly, we all know that there's a lot of assumed knowledge here. This creed compacts so much stuff that what we're going to do is just unpack a little bit this morning. Oh, I use that word that I hate so much, unpack. Ooh, censor me now. So I was in East Vancouver a couple weeks ago. And there was this random guy that walked in the back. I like hanging around the back because you get all the people who are on the fringe. Oh, maybe that's me. And, and, and you, you, we have great conversations. So this one guy walks in. He comes up and says, what's this place? I said, well, it's a church. What's a church? What is worship? Why do you sing? Are you a pastor? Are you a sex offender? Uh, no. Why do you, you kind of gather together? What's the importance of that? And the kicker, what's sin? I'm like, oh, okay, this is going to be fun. So rather than have this wonderful debate in front of lots of other people on look, looky-loos, I knew it was going to take hours, so we scheduled the time during the week, and we met. We met for coffee. And there was a, like, you ever watched, like, war movies where there's like, bup, 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 bup. I talk a lot, as you can tell. And I was like trying to catch all these questions like this, one after the one after the one after the water. Well, it turns out this guy had a very specific agenda. So as I explained all of the background, all filled in all the gaps of, of all the assumed knowledge about Christianity, what he really wanted to know is what is sin? And Heath, are you some sort of homophobic bigot that has a hard time with people who struggle with same-sex stuff? That's what he really wanted to know. Boy, he picked the wrong guy on the wrong day. Because the day before my friend died, who was a trans woman. So I begin to tell him of my love of trans people and how, how really the root of their identity issues is not necessarily that issue, but it's actually an identity issue. Anyway, before, he picked the wrong guy on the wrong day and it was like right back at him. And he's like, oh. And he literally walks up and goes away. Okay, I guess that's a conversation stopper. But anyway, regardless, my point is this. As Christians, in dealing with ethics, in dealing on how we are to live in society, it's easy for us, just like the Corinthians, to miss the point, to miss key elements of our faith. Either we, we highlight secondary issues that eclipse central issues, or we just kind of like jettison or put them under the carpet, things that we really don't want to talk about, and in doing so, we actually miss the point. We can, and we do, very literally throw the baby out with the bathwater, to use a metaphor. So this morning, we're going to fill in some assumed knowledge. Verse 3. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. So what is sin? Why, do we have to, why does he have to die? And what does accordance to the Scriptures mean anyway? So whether you're a new Christian or whether you're, you know, you've been seasoned in the faith for decades, you realize if you read the Bible, you crack it open to the very first page, it seems to go south real quick. It begins with this rebellious insurrection in the garden, doesn't it? Adam and Eve have a face-to-face -face relationship with God, but they disobeyed God's decree. They desire to have power and control for themselves. 
whether they knew that at the beginning or not, regardless, Adam becomes the first usurper. He asserts his autonomy over God, and that changes humanity forever. Face-to-face relationship with God is destroyed, and that is sin. Welcome to the party. So after that, you quickly see murder, you see incest, you see rape, you see slavery, you see arrogance of power, selfish exploitations of, of people groups and those others less fortunate than them, stuff that would, rec- you know, fill a whole HBO episode of the vilest stuff. In an ultimate sense, sin is a rebellion against God, exercising my authority over myself to the benefit of me at the expense of the other. Sin is saying, I know what's best for Heath every single time, and I'm going to choose that, not God. Now, what happens is, though, when you do that, and you get used to that, and you get to the the dopamine hits out of all of that, you become addicted to that. I I have the privilege of working with guys in addiction, and let me tell you, I'm just the same as they are. You see, we become consumed by ourself. Good things in our lives become ultimate things, and we become corrupted by these things. According to the scriptures, this rebellion, unchecked autonomy, this is sin. And quite bluntly, it ends in death. Physically, spiritually, separation from God. Now, because God is holy, our rebellion, our sin, this leads to God's wrath, which is death. We are all culpable. Try tweeting that sucker and see what happens. It's not popular. It's not believed doesn't make it any less true but but there's hope alongside stories of human carnage there are stories there there are 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 seeds of hope when you read the biblical narratives narrative you see this same holy god that exercises his wrath on sin you see this same holy god showing love showing compassion showing grace interacting with history time and time again proving that he wants he desires and he 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 actively pursues relationship with us so what starts out as a little seed of hope ends in the Old Testament with, with a, an expectation pregnant of a Messiah, somebody who would come to restore all people to God. This is a promised one who would deal with sin. This is a promised one that would break the power of death. This is the promised one that would provide all humanity a way to surrender our autonomy and our addiction to it. This is a way that God can actually liberate us from bondage. Spoiler alert. This promised Messiah is Jesus, the same one who Paul talks about. God himself sends his own son, sends his own son to earth as a baby. And this is why we celebrate Christmas. Not because we get presents, but because God acts in history to save us. And upon him, Jesus, this Messiah, all the sins of the world are laid upon him, past, present, and future. His, his death He dies for your autonomy, for your sin, for my autonomy, my sin. His death frees us, frees us from our insurrection. Jesus dies so that love would reign, not wrath. Christ City, the gravitational pull of the black hole of sin is real. Just try and escape it. Try to escape it on your own merit. We should see the death of Jesus breaks the power of sin. And let me tell you, 
That is good news. God saves sinners. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 4. He was buried. And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, we, logically, we all know that people die, right? It's a logical thing to think, really, that the dead can be raised. It's quite, it's quite a thing if you actually try to contemplate that. Humanly speaking, there were, there were people at that time that began to say, well, wait a minute, okay, we saw Jesus alive. Well, he, if, how do you raise the dead? No, so, so there must be something. Maybe he really didn't die. Maybe somebody else died on the cross in his place. Uh, how do we explain the crucifixion without this? And therefore, he must not have actually been raised to life. Well, Paul says that in our text, that from the very beginning, from the very beginning of Christian faith, people saw, people knew that Jesus actually died. And that he was entombed for three days. Now, last week, as I mentioned earlier, I was in the room when my friend died of made medical assistance in dying. Let me tell you, I won't detail the horrific things I saw. But what I can say is that you can see when somebody is alive and asleep, and you can see when they're dead. Death is real. Jesus really died. People saw it. But three days later, he was raised from the dead. See, it's one thing for Jesus to substitute himself for us on our behalf, taking our sin and the punishment for it, is wholly another thing to break the power of death itself. Death and separation from God entered the world through Adam's insurrection, his autonomy, and his sin. When Jesus was raised to life, that power of death, that sin and resulting separation from God, that power was broken, giving humanity another way. In Jesus and his resurrection, our relationship with God is restored. Jesus' resurrection from the dead mediates a new reality. He stands in the gap for us, advocating for humanity. Now, it's easy for me to state that. It's even easy for Paul to proclaim that, like he was the super apostle, right? Well, how do we know it's true? How can we verify his words as truth? How do we know it's true for us today? Well, verse 4, and then we'll roll into 5, says this. As he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Paul says, hey, I can verify that Jesus saves sinners. Why? Because he appeared to me. He saved me on a road. I, and as what, what Brant will preach next week, he says, I was the murderer of all murders. I was the worst, the most vilest individual. And God appeared to me and he saved me. So, but if you don't believe me, here's a litany of witnesses to verify this truth. It's not just me. It's not my idea. I didn't come up with this because it's crazy otherwise. So Paul says, what I delivered to you, that it's the first importance, what I also received from Jesus himself, that God saves sinners through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'm a witness of that. This is the gospel. This is the good news of first importance. Christ City, God saves sinners through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which I, Heath Meekle, standing here in 2023, am a witness of. 
So why do we care? Point number two. What is, why do we actually give any two hoots about this gospel? Well, quite frankly, because it's a matter of life and death. In order to receive this power of the resurrection, we must surrender our autonomy to Jesus. In other words, fancy, this is just a fancy way of saying, we must confess our sins and repent. Old school words, but they, they don't, they're not any less powerful. This isn't just a difficult thing for anarchists, Christ City. We as consumer capitalists have the same struggle, do we not? We must respond to him. We must, see, he takes our sin and we receive power of his resurrection. Just like what Spiro saw and proclaimed and celebrated in my daughter's baptism, we proclaim that we are dead to self and alive in Christ. The power of the resurrection starts with a changed heart, just like my friend Spiros. The problem is that we as a culture, that we're really no different than the Corinthians here. We functionally believe, you know, in the power of the resurrection. And therefore, you know, we don't really, you don't really want to surrender. We may give lip service to this creed. We may recite it. We may say, yeah, pragmatically, that works great. But actually what we do is we, we discredit our relationship with God that is of most importance. You see, having, you know, the reality is having to live in this natural world, we get on with life and we settle for second-rate narrative of human flourishing on our terms. And we become, that becomes of what is most important functionally in our lives. We settle for human flourishing that we can control, not human flourishing in relationship with God. Now, Charles Taylor if you want some great bedtime reading, read his massive tome on the secular age. It's brilliant. But it Charles Taylor expresses our Christian reality this way. It's pretty interesting. Now, the Christian outlook introduces something quite different, something incommensurable. Although Christian faith has incorporated and at times elaborated different concepts of the natural order of things, it focuses on another dimension. The eschatological, in other words, the end view. We are called to live a quiet, transformed life, one in which death has been overcome. This transformation involves our living for something beyond the human flourishing as defined by the natural order, whatever it be. Why do we care? Because we too can look forward to another dimension, as Taylor puts it. We can live a transformed life right here, right now because our hearts are changed by the death and it and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can look forward to a time when like my friend Spiros we will be made whole, we will receive a new body at the end of this age, the time when Jesus will return to make all things new. Why do we care? Because God saves sinners through the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why is this message of such utmost importance? Because until that time, until the end of the age comes, even through, even though death, practically speaking, as I've just proclaimed, has been defeated, we all know there's still stuff that goes on in the world. People still die enslaved in their own autonomy. People still die having even heard that truth. My friend Spiros would have died if not our church had not rallied around him and proclaimed truth to him. 
my friend Spiros would, not, would, would have died if he did not accept that message of Jesus. Christ City people die not having heard or not having accepted Jesus, simply put. This truth of Jesus is of most important because it's a matter of life and death right here and right now. Now to bring this out of abstract ideas to brass tacks reality. I was acutely reminded of this urgency a week ago when my friend chose medical assistance in dying and I was in the room. And as I was thinking through this text, knowing I had to preach this this week, I thought to myself in that moment, did I proclaim to my friend this thing that is of utmost importance? Did I proclaim power and hope found in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? My answer was yes. A few weeks before her death, before Christmas, in a moment of excruciating pain, my friend decided it'd be really great to OD on fentanyl. And if you, you know, if you're, if you're new to Vancouver and you haven't heard of that, well, there's a crisis apparently. And when my friend received her 10th Narcan shot, I kid you not, when she was brought back from the brink of death, a day later she phones me and she casually expressed to me, Heath, I'm ready to meet my maker. Well, I kind of snapped. Okay, I went full on Hulk. I screamed at her, are you kidding me? Like, are you kidding me? Do you really know what you're saying? If you stand before God on your own terms, you're obliterated. And I keep going, you, you confront, <laughs> to confront the full wrath of God on your own terms means certain death. If you stand before God with the work of Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection, quite frankly, you're screwed. <sighs> She's like, whoa, okay. If God looks at you and he doesn't see Jesus standing there taking all the wrath and giving you his holiness and his purity, you are in trouble. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? She was very shocked and probably a little sheepish because I probably never reacted that way to her. She says, Heath, I'm so, so tired. And I know I need to have more hope. But I believe that Jesus can do that. And I know, I know I'll be made new. I'm like, okay. It's complicated. You see, we as a culture, the problem is that we as a culture, we want to meet God on our own terms, don't we? And that's a lie. Paul's urgency here in this text, what is of most important is this, is this. In reality, we meet God on his terms, not on ours. Are we ready? Are we ready to meet God on his terms? We have a life. We have a hope that is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In very different ways, both my friend Spiros and my friend who died of maid express this hope of the resurrection. One was a womanizing anarchist and the other was a trans prostitute on the downtown east side. 
So as we come to our end here this morning, there's one more powerful and very tangible thing that we need to express, that we need to see and we need to proclaim. You see, 2,000 years ago, there were eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus appeared to them. And things are no different today. Jesus appears to people. I can't tell you how many times I worked with refugees in Greece, how many times I would have random people coming out of the Middle East saying, hey, I saw this vision of a glowing man. His name is Jesus. Can you tell me about him? God reveals himself to people. He also reveals himself through us. We are witnesses. We are, we are, if this text would be written today, he would, Paul would say, and, and, and ask the people about Christ City Kitsilano because they have seen the resurrected Lord. You need to know this. You need to walk in the power of this and you need to not be afraid of the stuff that's going to come our way when we do so. So I leave you with this. Are we going to live our lives in the light of what's most important? Will we have an urgency that, that really is, is rooted in compassion for others? Whether they're going to die. Do we have that care? Do we have that urgency? Are we going to meet God on our terms? Or are we going to meet God on his terms? Let's pray. God, we ask that you would forgive us in the times when we've been complacent. We ask that you forgive us in the times where we're, where we just want to just roll over and just take care of ourselves. Lord, we ask for forgiveness in ways where we fail every day. But Lord, we also thank you and we praise you and we give you worship and we give you glory because you have empowered us, you have made us new, and we have something the world desperately needs. So Lord, help us put our big boy and big girl pants on and actually proclaim that in our culture. In your name I pray. Amen.